Um, nobody's ever good enough. Have you noticed this? Nobody's ever good enough. I'll uh, share some examples from my life. I hope here that um, you'll use these examples to think on those moments in your life when this thesis was proved true. Nobody's ever good enough. Do you remember the uh, time you realized your parents were human? My parents are here, Jim and Kathy Candelon. I give you honor in this house. I remember, um, literally remember, the first time I realized they were human. When you're little, you think they're superhumans, right? I have fairly high-capacity parents, impressive in every way. And uh, I was duly impressed as a young boy, watching them do their thing. And when I realized that uh, they don't always do everything right, it was, it was a moment. It was definitely a moment. You realize, wait a second, they're human, just like me. They're not good enough. Nobody's ever good enough. Did you have a sibling who called you nasty names? I haven't told you about this, but I refer to it once in a while. We were sitting at dinner in Jerusalem growing up, and I was 11, 12. I was a little chubby. You're like, you're still a little chubby. Thank you. (laughs) I'm working on it. I'm working on it. We were eating spaghetti. And my younger brother, Jess, who is now chubbier than me, called me King Kong Bundy. Those of you who are my contemporaries may remember the WWF, King Kong Bundy, big, huge, fat wrestler. I burst into tears and ran from the table. And what's, what's really scary about this, right, is we have these casual words that we can throw around. I bet you if my brother knew that, if he knew, that that slur would stick with me for the rest of my life. He would have thought twice, even though he was, what, eight? But no joke, I've carried that with me my whole life. Every time I start getting a little out of shape, I think, I'll turn into King Kong Bundy. (laughs) My brother wasn't good enough. I quit the football team in grade nine. We've moved back from Israel. My whole life, all I wanted to do was play organized football. There's no organized football in Israel. So grade nine, we moved back from Israel to London, Ontario, and uh, I tried out for the football team. I was a pretty good athlete. I thought I was going to make it. First practice. This is before football became a kinder and gentler sport. They made us do Oklahoma. This is where you line up on your back, jump up, and smash each other. Of course, they made all the rookies do it against the grade 12s. And a grade 12 kid just whooped me so hard, I, uh, I quit. And for the rest of that season, every time there was a game, I remember standing on the far side of the field just regretting the fact that I wasn't good enough to stick it out. I went back the next year, grade 10, now in Mississauga, and I made the team. The rest is history. I met some guys from U of T, actually, this weekend at a game up in Barrie. Every time you meet the guys from U of T, you remind them that you're part of the 1993 team, Vanier Cup champions. Thank you very much. I was an outside linebacker then. I was a little chubbier. Actually, I was the same size then as I am now. But I quit. I wasn't good enough. My first girlfriend, she was nice, then she was nasty. (laughs) I fired my uh, close friend in the early 2000s. You ever have to fire a close friend? Destroyed our relationship. I wasn't a good enough boss and I wasn't a good enough friend. 
I left my first church plant, one I shouldn't have. Should have stayed. I invested 20 years in a relationship that turned destructive. Nobody's good enough. Which is why you need Jesus. We'll see this uh, illustrated very clearly in Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The peoples of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. With their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hizzites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening service. And at the evening service sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, If you're thinking that Ezra was a bit of a drama king, I thought so too the first time I read this. It's making quite a scene. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet... Our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure from the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. It's a very dramatic scene. Uh, Ezra here in chapters 9 and 10 takes a bit of a dark turn. Why do I like this? When I came to this book, I realized right away, hmm, how am I going to finish this series on an up note so these people leave encouraged when the book finishes on such a dark note? The reason I'm encouraged about chapter 9 taking us into this dark place is because I have learned from experience, and I'm quite sure you have learned from experience, that someday your life will do the same. Has your life ever taken a dark turn? Anyone but me? Yes, it has, right? Your life has taken a dark turn. This is what happens to the human race. Your life takes a dark turn. So, here's the thesis in today's sermon. How do you rebuild in the midst of a screwed up life? 
Because that's what's happened here in Ezra 9. How do you rebuild, right? We're hoping to help you rebuild the broken places in your life as a result of the time spent in Ezra chapter 9. So how do you rebuild in the midst of a screwed up life? Well, you fixate on, you react and respond to, and you partner with Jesus. At the end of the day, there's a really simple point from this sermon. Um, You need Jesus. In fact, I'm going to give you 11 reasons that you need Jesus. Uh, You need Jesus, number one, because after you've been saved is when the real work begins. You might miss this when you come to the text casually. Verse 1, the people of Israel have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. Remember the story of Ezra. It's the story of the people of Israel returning to Israel from exile in Babylon. Okay? Eighty years before the events of Ezra chapter 9, King Cyrus secured his kingdom of Persia, conquering the kingdom of Babylon. And one of his first acts is to write an edict sending the Israelites home. He does this, we don't know for sure, but in response to the Lord. We don't know for sure how the Lord did it, but he says the Lord told him to. We don't know if it's a dream, we don't know if it's a messenger, but for whatever reason, Cyrus sends God's people home. They come home and they embark on this epic rebuilding of the temple, the house of worship in Jerusalem, 80 years before the events recorded in Ezra chapter 9. The newly redeemed people of Israel, rescued from exile, an exile to which they were sent for lack of faithfulness, have fallen into faithlessness 80 years later. They went home and there was work to be done. What is the work to be done? The work that is to be done by God's people is the work of faithfulness. And they have failed in the span of two generations. 80 years, two generations. You might be thinking... Those darn Old Testament Jews always screwing things up. May I point out to you that we have fallen into faithlessness over the last 80 years in the Canadian context. Let me give you one statistic that bears this out. In 1946, 70% of Canadians were in weekly religious worship service. 1946, 70% of Canadians were in weekly religious worship service. In 2013, six years ago, so it's gotten worse since then, 13% of Canadians were in weekly worship service. From 70% to 13%. This is from the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada and Angus Reid. So don't tell me that the Jewish people from the Old Testament are a bunch of losers without saying that we are a bunch of losers. Thank you, Steve. What is faithfulness? It's simple. When God sets up this whole relationship thing with the first of his designated people, Abram, who later became Abraham, the father of Judaism, he says to him in Genesis 17, 7, I will be your God, you will be my person. This is what faithfulness is. God will be your God, and in response, you are to be his person. We have fallen into a gross error in Christianity in the West in the last 80 years. We have begun to think of faith in terms of fire insurance. I was having this conversation with my teenagers this week after youth group. A conversation that I was having with my youth leaders after youth group when I was a teenager. This whole concept that you come to Jesus to avoid the fires of hell. Faith equals fire insurance. Let me say to you that faith does not equal fire insurance. Faith equals friendship. 
Okay? Fire insurance is no good unless you're friends with God. This concept that somehow you say the right words, sign the right form, and you're good, false. Friendship with God is the fruit of faithfulness. It's once you awaken to the life of God that the real work begins. The work of faithfulness. The work of friendship. And you're going to need Jesus to help with that work because point number two, sin tends to get up ahead of steam. Do you know this? Verse 1, they've not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. Okay, what are we talking about here? When we talk about abominations in the Old Testament, we need to be very careful because there's a lot of things that are abominable, including like clothing with mixed fibers, including eating the wrong kind of thing. If you swallow an insect, it's an abomination, right? So like if you drank coffee this morning, there's insect remains in the grinds of your coffee, you're technically an abomination. Okay, so we don't go too far with weaponizing the Old Testament when it comes to this infamous word, abomination. But in this case, we're talking about something very, very serious. Okay, the root of this reference is found in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their lands, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them, after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. If you want to simplify Canaanite worship practices right down to root level, there's two main cultic practices in Canaanite worship. One, the Astoreth cult, which is the cult of fertility. Okay, whereby you would go and um, cavort with the temple prostitutes in order to invite Astoreth to bless your land with fertile crops. As you can imagine, the Canaanite men tend to really appreciate the Astart cult. The Canaanite women, not quite as much, but there were times of the year when even the women got in on the act. Okay, that's the Astart cult, the Astoreth cult. Okay, God hates it. Why? Sex is not a toy, sex is a tool. Okay, we tend to think that God is very fixated on the details of sexual relationships. I was raised to believe by my father and my mother through their long study of scripture, and now because I'm an adult too, my own, that at the end of the day, God is worried about sex because sex is rooted in family, and God loves family. Why? Because he made the human race to be his friends forever. He wants more and more people to be his friends forever. Sex is meant to be used as a tool to fill the earth so that we can then subdue it. It is not a toy. God hates licentiousness, hates it. The second famed cult in Canaanite worship practice, the Molech cult. Molech, the god of fire. If you had a series of bad harvests, the head man in your town, the priest, would say, all right, it's time. <sighs> Imagine. Todd says it's time. We had a bad harvest last year, a bad harvest the year before. This spring, we're gonna, this, this fall, we're going to worship Molech. We have a spot in town where we have a, a chute with a fire pit underneath it. I send my board members out into the city of Guelph to collect your firstborn son. doesn't matter how old they are. So we get me, but I'm the priest, so I probably wouldn't get killed. We take my dad. We take Jordan. We take Eric Bitten. Who else are the firstborn sons in here? Firstborn daughters, raise your hands. We take Hannah. We take Jules. How old are you, Jules? Okay, we're burning you tomorrow. They light the fire, 
They put you on the chute, they drop you in. Abomination. God hates it. Now here's where it gets really scary. Man, I wish I had more time. Someday. All child sacrifices is selfishness taken to the nth degree. You're like, I would never do that. Oh, no? Think about it. Think about all the things that you have done to sacrifice your children on the altar of prosperity. Think of all the things you would do to benefit yourself, regardless of the cost to others. Like a train rolling downhill, sin doesn't tend to get more moderate the more you indulge it. Like, I almost never stick to just eating half a peanut butter and honey sandwich. I'm so ridiculous, I make a half, because I'm trying to not be King Kong Bundy. And it's so good that I often go back and make the second half. Sin is just like that. Sin rolls. You're going to have to lay a tree across the tracks if you want to derail it. How many of you just got that poetic reference right there? I'll say it again. You're going to have to lay a tree across the tracks if you want to derail sin. And look, since you live in a world full of sinful people doing sinful things, yourself first among them, and remember that I write this sermon first for me. Okay? So when I say yourself, remember I said it to me first before I say it to you. And I don't detune it to say we, because I'm not trying to be a kinder, gentler preacher. I'm trying to be a Bible preacher. But don't get it twisted. I wrote this first for me. So when I say yourself first among them, I mean that for me, but also for you. Um, you're going to need Jesus because you live in a sinful world full of sinful people. You're first, yourself first among them doing sinful things. You're going to need Jesus to help you. Point number three, mix without blending. This is what's happening in verse two. Mixed marriages. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Okay, let's de-weaponize the Old Testament here. Um, all right. Unlike the Jews, God does not call us to separate ourselves from culture. In fact, my life verse says quite the opposite. My life verse is out of Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16, where we read the following. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Here it is. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, here it is again, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In the midst of and among whom, last time I checked, mean in the midst of and among whom. Okay, we are not called to separate ourselves from culture any longer. All right, this is echoed in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world, a city on a which cannot be hidden. You are not the light of the church, a city in the country which cannot be seen. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Neither did they light a lamp and put it under a bull, but they put it on its stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Somebody preach this morning. <laughs> Fill the earth and subdue it. Not the garden. I want you to stay in Eden. Have a holy race in the Garden of Eden. No. Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28. Go into 
the world and make disciples of every creature. Alright? Have I won you over? Have I sold you? Hopefully. Okay? We are called to redemptively mix without blending in. You put a rock in your Vitamix, it's still going to be a rock. (laughs) Poor Vitamix. And to redemptively mix without blending in, you're going to need Jesus. Why? Because even your leaders are faithless. We read this in verse 2, part B. So, contrary to popular opinion, I am not perfect. You're like, we knew that. Okay. (laughs) Did you notice that even the leaders were chief among these sinners? In verse 2, part B. Look, your sin is way more than you can handle. Verse 6, part B, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. Have you noticed that nobody gets help till they realize they need it? You ever notice this? We're so ridiculous. Here's the point for you Christians, all right? You can't manufacture brokenness, so stop trying. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your peers, they will not come to Jesus until they reach the end of themselves. And you cannot take them there. Life will take them there. And also, while you're worrying about your friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, and peers who haven't come to Jesus, newsflash, if you think you're fine, you're not fine. So let's stop it with this whole us and them mentality. How do I know we're not fine? Because I read verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt And I know, not just Jewish people, but I've met a few Christians. And I know that we have also been in great guilt, which is why you need Jesus. Why? Point five. Well, because you don't just have a sin problem. You have a historical sin problem. Did you notice this? From the days of our fathers, we have been in great guilt. So I thought about this. I'm like, is this true of us also? So I did some research. Let's talk about addiction. Um, One to two percent of all Canadian death is alcohol related. One to two percent. Uh, drug abuse costs $23 billion a year in Canada. One quarter of Canadian teens were offered illegal drugs this year. And 80% of your teenagers admit to at least one incident of binge drinking in the past year. 80%. <laughs> According to a 2012 study, 8 million Canadians are suffering from addiction. 8 million. Let's talk about poverty. Five million Canadians live in poverty. Five million. 21% of single moms live in poverty. 7% of single dads live in poverty. I don't even need to hit that one again, do I? One in five Canadian children live in poverty. Let's talk about death and violence. Ten people die by suicide Every day in Canada. Ten people. Every day. One quarter of Canadian pregnancies are aborted. I am wildly anti-abortion. Wildly. Alright? I make no apology for being irate at the fact that we have aborted four million babies in Canada since its legalization in 1969. Less than 1% of those abortions are considered the tough cases. Tough cases involve rape. And 3% 
involve the mother being at risk. Four million. In 2016, of all reported violent crime, 26% of it was family violence. 67% of the victims of family violence are women and girls. There is a general trend in the universe towards death and disorder. We call this entropy. The world is not going to fix itself. Neither are you. Live and let live always devolves to eat, drink, and be miserable for tomorrow we die. Did you ever meet anybody who made the misery go away with one more shot of vodka? Anybody? Never. Not once. Why do we suffer a culture that leads so many astray? Why do we not speak the truth? Everybody knows it. Nobody wants to admit it. I'll tell you why. Because we are sinful. And like dogs returning to our vomit, we love to sin. Why? Because our sinfulness is rooted in the great and original rebellion that was vested in the Garden of Eden when our first father Adam and our first mother Eve said to God, screw you, we're going to do whatever we want. And since that day, this is what people do. Because at the heart of it, we want to be God so that we can rule and reign and get the glory that we think we deserve. Which is why nobody wants to repent, because they know that in repentance, they must change. This is why Jesus came, to do what we could not do. God the Son made flesh goes to a cross where he suffers and dies once and for all in our place for our sins. And not just our sins, but the sins of the world. He bears the penalty for the sins of the world. Every woman who ever got abused, Jesus has paid the price. Every husband who was ever an idiot, Jesus has paid the price. Every drug dealer who ever got anyone hooked on methamphetamine, Jesus has paid the price. And every dead baby is standing around the throne of glory, even now giving him praise. He paid that price, and he really died. And the father really turned his back on him. And he really forsook him because he was that filthy with your sin and mine. But oh, glory and trumpets in the words of Samwise Gamgee. On that third day, the very first Easter Sunday morning, the God-man got back up, conquering in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And he has now made a way where there used to be no way. And my dear friends, that is the way of Jesus. And that is how Christians live you need Jesus because, point number seven, I'm going to go a little over time, but I will do my best. Just, you need Jesus because just like verse seven, sin has real consequences. Did you see in verse seven that as a result of their sin, God gave them over to the kings, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame? Do you know of, have you ever heard of anybody in our world given over to these things? Let's bring those ancient concepts into modern day vernacular. Have you ever heard of anybody suffering under an oppressive government? Have you ever heard of anybody suffering under unjust violence? 
Have you ever heard of anybody suffering under slavery or addiction? Have you ever met anybody who in the midst of a world of plenty lives like they are suffering from scarcity? Have you ever met anybody for whom the pleasures of Western society are never enough? Have you ever met anybody whose life is marked by constant despair? Friend, these problems cannot be solved by getting a better self-help process. These problems are solved by Jesus and his way. Point number seven, Jesus gives much more than temporary relief. I mean, temporary relief is good in verse eight, but I'm looking for a relief that lasts forever. Point number eight, he specializes in wading into imperfect situations like in verse seven, where he saves them in their slavery while we were yet sinners. Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus steps into those ugly situations. Why? Point nine, because his true love, oh, I love this sermon, is a love that reaches into your real world. Let me read to you verse 9, part B. To grant us, listen to these things that he grants, and you tell me if they're not practical. To grant us reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Revival, home building, ruin repair, protection, real world relief. That's what Jesus does. Somebody shout, that's what Jesus does. That's what you are meant to do if you belong to Jesus. So even if, point number 10, you're not faithful, and like in verses 10 through 11, you forsake the law of God, which for us is to love God and love neighbor, even if you forsake these two, he is faithful to forgive you your sins if you will bow the knee, repent, and obey in love moving forward. Why? Because, point number 11, he is a God of mercy. Worship team, come join me on stage. Who, in verse 13, has not given you what you deserve. Friends, he has given you grace where you deserved punishment. He has given you life where you deserved obliteration, like in verse 14. And just like he left them a remnant in verse 15, he has given you a second chance in Christ. So although you cannot stand before God in your own strength, one, do the work. Two, derail sin. Three, mix without blending. Four, remember you're not fine. Five, neither you nor the world is going to fix itself. And six, because sin has real consequences. Seven, you're going to need to lean on Jesus who gives much more than temporary relief. Eight, who specializes in wading into imperfect situations. Nine, because his true love is a love that reaches ten and he's always faithful. Eleven, because he's a God of mercy. He has given you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So accept the fact that you're never going to be good enough, but Jesus is. So fixate on react and respond to and partner with him and somebody said amen Amen.